Welcome into a new episode of Paul's Points. Today is Tuesday, October 6th. I'm your host, Paul Fritchner. And before we get started, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. also want to give a quick thanks to everybody that has already left a rating and a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it helps me know what you all like listening to, what you want to hear more of in the future. So go ahead and make sure you do that if you haven't done it yet. Today's guest on the show is Larry Colmus, the voice of horse racing's Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup for NBC. The Preakness was this past weekend. I thought it was an appropriate time to air this interview. We recorded it last week before the Preakness was run. Larry was incredibly gracious with his time, and he told some fantastic behind-the-scenes stories from all of his years in horse racing, and in particular, his years calling the Triple Crown. He took over from Tom Durkin in 2011 calling the Kentucky Derby. He's had the privilege to be able to call the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years when American Pharaoh finally broke that drought in 2015. And for those of you that are fans of the movie Secretariat, one of the, if not the best horses of all time, Larry shares an experience from that Belmont weekend in 2015 that directly intersects with one of the characters from Secretariat. It was a really, really cool behind-the-scenes look into his weekend there, his reaction to calling that race, and the emotion that overtook him when American Pharaoh finally crossed that finish line. He also shared what went on in 2019 when maximum security was disqualified in the Kentucky Derby, something that rarely happens in horse racing and had never happened in the Kentucky Derby. Maximum security disqualified and how NBC and the rest handled that situation. Larry goes into all that and more on today's show. Don't miss it. Just a spectacular interview with Larry Colmus. But before we get to Larry couple of things I got to address. I'll keep this brief because some of it is old news by now. I'm somebody that if you have bad news and you have good news, I always like to hear the bad news first and end on the good news. So I'll give you the bad news first and you all probably know it by now. The Cincinnati Reds in their first playoff series since 2013 were swept in the two out of three last week against the Atlanta Braves. Did not score a run in 22 innings. Set a new mark for postseason ineptness, futility at the plate. Could not score a run, and they had plenty of chances to do it. Left 13 men on base in game one and got the pitching performance of a lifetime out of Trevor Bauer. And that's what you pay a guy like Trevor Bauer to do. You trade for him last year. That's why you have him on the roster, to go out there and put up a performance like he did in game one against the Braves, but the offense couldn't give him any support. Thought a couple of times he might be able to break through, but were never able to do that. Could never push a run across. The Braves took advantage, won one nothing in game one, then 5 nothing in game two. Not as close. Rossiel Iglesias giving up a couple home runs, and that was it for the Reds. A very quick postseason, a very early exit for the Reds who had lofty goals for the postseason but it had been brought up so frequently as the Reds closed the season out that the offense was a struggle all year and those two games 
really a microcosm of their entire 2020 season in a frustrating way for the Reds to go out after Cincinnati was looking forward so much to seeing them make a deep playoff run in October. But the season over for the Reds, we'll have to see what they do in free agency, if they bring in any big names, especially in the lineup, maybe you go out there and you get a shortstop, shortstop. Uh, Marcus Simeon may be available and free. Well, he will be available, but which team will sign him? Does he go back to Oakland? Does he come to Cincinnati? Does he go somewhere else? We'll have to see. Trevor Bauer, does he decide to re-sign with the Reds? A lot of people saying he might go out to Southern California and play with the Padres. Good friends with Mike Clevenger, who is already on the Padres. We'll see. A lot of things for the Reds to shake out. A lot of things for the Washington Nationals to shake out, too. Some guys that won't be returning for next year. Sean Doolittle posted on Twitter the other night that he may not be returning next year. A lot of big decisions for both of those clubs. And the only other news I had and the good news is that the Cincinnati Bengals won a football game. They beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, who aren't exactly a Super Bowl contender, but a win is a win, especially going into a week against a Super Bowl contender in the Baltimore Ravens. Joe Burrow looks the part of an NFL franchise quarterback. Cincinnati has their guy. Gets his first win. Bengals now 1-2-1. Very tough sledding ahead in the next four or five weeks, but some good news for the Bengals to finally get on the board. Now they're 1-2-1 on the season. Let's get into the interview. After this break, it's the voice of horse racing's Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup for NBC. Larry Colmus. And now welcome on Larry Colmus, most notably the voice of the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup on NBC. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. We'll uh, have a little bit of fun talking about uh, things for the next few minutes or so. Should be a good time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, so this kind of came about uh, from my broadcast back of the baseball game a few weeks ago when you and I connected on Twitter. I had to kind of jokingly call the horse race on the Jumbotron. And I got to say, Larry, I wasn't too happy with the product that I put out. But considering I couldn't really see the horses and your audio was very delayed, so I couldn't hear who was in front, I tried to do my best. But uh, I, I think you can acknowledge I have a lot of room to grow there. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it, it's tough to call something you can't see, so that's a, that's a big disadvantage to start with there. So uh, I wouldn't worry about it. it. It seems like you're doing pretty well at what you're doing already, so just just keep uh, keep at it. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into your your career. You got into broadcasting uh, horse racing when you were very young. You were 18. How did you decide on horse racing? You get started in Bowie, which is actually where. I'll be next year with the Bowie Bay Sox. You and I both with that Maryland connection. You're from Baltimore. But how did you decide on horse racing? Was that something you always wanted to do and, and be interested in? Well, what happened in my case, uh, my father was the fellow that put in the sound system at the Maryland State Fair at Timonium. And he would bring me to the track uh, to work for him in the summer. And uh, he would set up all the, you know, the exhibition areas and basically left me in the grandstand at the racetrack part of it to monitor the sound, whether it was loud enough or not, because I was pretty much mechanically incompetent to do anything else. So, uh, so I was there and just completely fell in love with racing. I, I knew that was what I uh, wanted to do. I felt like I fit right in with the, uh, the characters at the track. And uh, it was like a, a love at first sight thing for me. 
and uh, just a matter of what I wanted to do in horse racing. I knew it was something. And then I started watching these races around the country of the, the different announcers uh, and their styles of calling races. And I'm like, uh, you know, maybe this is something that uh, I could start doing. And I would be doing impressions of the announcers up in the press box. And, and one of the guys up there said, you should try to do this for real and, you know, get a pair of binoculars and a tape recorder and start practicing. And that's what I did and sort of went from there. Wow. So you, you've talked a lot through your career about the grind of finally trying to make it. And you broadcasted for years and years and years before finally getting the call for your first derby uh, back in 2010, 2011. You get a phone call a couple weeks before the race about replacing the legendary Tom Durkin. How did that play out? And what was your initial reaction to eventually doing your first derby in 2011? You know, that was a kind of a, a funny story because when uh, Tom Durkin was stepping down from calling the Triple Crown, it was not made public right away. And I had no idea. No one had any idea that Tom was going to be doing that. So getting a phone call from NBC uh, about calling the Kentucky Derby certainly caught me off guard. And I remember getting the call from Fred Goodelli, who was at the time the producer for the Triple Crown and, and also Sunday Night Football. And uh, so Fred uh, said, we want to talk to you about this. And uh, I immediately thought, now what sick friend of mine is playing a joke on me here? You know, what, what is that? <laughs> and so uh, my, re my reaction to Fred was, well, that's Tom Durkin's gig. And he said, yeah, he says, Tom is stepping down, but... Uh, uh, we, you know, we're not making that public, uh, and this is for real. And we want you to fly to New York, and they, they took me uh, the next. Uh, I had to wait for four days until I had a day off from Gulfstream down in Florida, and and they, uh, they flew me to to uh, to LaGuardia, uh, took me to Thirty Rock, uh, which was the NBC headquarters at the time, and I met with uh, a bunch of people from NBC. But the the really funny part about it was, you know, they were all. That I think they had made jokes about how skeptical I was about the situation at first. And, and when I uh, was sitting in Fred's office, I, I see this guy walk in. And I, right away, I recognized that it was Dick Ebersol, who was the chairman of NBC Sports. And so Dick, Dick Ebersol says to Fred, oh, uh, you know, the Sunday night football schedule came out. We've got this game and this game. It's going to be so great. And, and Fred says, Dick, this is Larry. We're talking to him about taking over for Tom Durkin. And Eversol's like, oh, okay, sounds good. Uh, but this game we got and that game, you know, totally ignoring <laughs> that part. And so as Dick Eversol is walking out of the room, he turns around and he says, oh, Larry, by the way, do you believe us now? And uh, so the whole thing was kind of a, a setup for me, I think, there for him to, to make fun of me for my skeptic, skeptical behavior. Uh, but uh, they called me back that night and said, welcome to NBC Sports. And I became the, the voice of the Triple Crown. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was crazy because it, I was like a 25-year overnight sensation. You know, somebody that's <laughs> calling all these races all these years to the guy that gets to call the Triple Crown. And it just happened so fast. How did uh, you – oh, go ahead. Thing. Go ahead. What were you going to say? How, how did you uh, get the job? Now, that sounds – a little, I guess, weird to say, but you get the call out of the blue and you're not expecting it. So it doesn't really sound to me like you were applying for it. Did NBC hear your tape from the calls that you had done for 
20 plus years or did somebody put in a referral for you or how did you get connected with them? From what I gather, uh, they were putting together their broadcast for the Kentucky Derby and they just decided to all listen to the Derby prep races from around the country. And I called the Florida Derby and, and they liked it and they, they uh, all thought that I was the, the right guy for the job, but I'm, I'm glad they did. Wow. And that's something that I think, you know, myself as a broadcaster and a lot of other young broadcasters, uh, you weren't so young at the time, but you had gone through a lot of, of preparation for, like I said, over 20 years being able to do that. And as we always talk about the grind of finally making it to the top, how do you keep yourself focused and how do you keep yourself determined when calling the Derby is your life's goal? And then finally, after all those years, it pays off. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that, that kind of comes easy because, uh, you know, with calling the Kentucky Derby comes a lot of responsibility and, and a lot of uh, nerves and, and, you know, you, you just, you have to do all the work. You have to research. And the thing is, I don't care if it's your first Kentucky Derby or your fifth or your 10th, it doesn't get any easier. Every year is a new challenge. This year may have been a touch easier because there was only 15 horses instead of the normal 20. But uh, you, you have to prepare, you have to go in there and I get my flashcards and I, I memorize all those jockey silks for weeks leading up to the Derby and, and the running styles of the horses, the markings, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, you, you want to be able to give your best call you could possibly do and it, it's never good enough. It, it's always something where you think you can do better next time and you, you, try, to, you try to do whatever you can do to, you know, do it your best and, and, and hope it comes out that way. But uh, it's all about work and preparation. And if you don't do that, it's just, it's, you're wasting your time. You mentioned it a little bit right there. How do you prepare for the Derby or, or any of your races really, but especially the triple crown races, the Breeders' Cup, when you're on NBC, you're in front of millions and how do you prepare for it? You're writing flashcards, you're doing the, the jockeys and, and everything, the, the colors, the numbers. How are you organizing all that and memorizing it? The, the jockey silks are the, are the main guide uh, as far as keeping track. I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to numbers. It's more of the silks because that's the easiest thing for me to see. And also they tend to stay consistent because those are the colors of the, the owner of the horse. So if you consistently see that horse in those colors, that horse will stick in your head a little bit better. So what I'll start doing in the case of the Kentucky Derby, months in advance, start watching prep races, uh, the Santa Anita Derby, the Florida Derby, the Wood Memorial, all these races, and just, you know, just keep, you know, get a feel for these horses and who they are. And then as we get closer and you kind of know who the horses are going to be in the Derby, that's when... Churchill Downs will send me some silks, uh, basically not the actual jockey silks, but a, but a uh, you know a cutout of of what they're going to be, and uh, and anyway it, when they do that it, it you know I, I just start making flashcards and uh, and have the silks on one side and the information on the other and just just put them in my head as much as I can and do it ten times a day something like that until uh, right up until race time and. Uh, when the when the horses go into the gate and Mike Tarico sends it over to me, it's like it, it's like a fog for two minutes. You know, you're just yeah. you just go, you just go through it and and when it's over, it's over. I don't even know what I said when they hit the wire. 
Um, and, and one of the things that I find really interesting is watching your booth camera after the race, usually NBC will upload a video of you actually calling the race with the horse race and like a picture in picture in the background. And you're always calling the race through your set of binoculars and you're not looking down. You're not looking at everything. Everything is happening so fast. That memorization has it down to a science and watching you call it through the binoculars. Is it ever tough? doing it like that and and having to make sure your hands are steady and everything like that and you're just totally relying on your memorization yeah it's tough uh, for sure when you're dealing with 20 horses and just trying to keep track of everything that's going on in front of you but yeah i, I use a pair of canon uh, 15 by 50 image stabilizer binoculars so those things they come with a battery basically and uh, it, it stabilizes the image so it doesn't shake and uh, when that happens uh, you know, you, you know, it steadies it for you because believe me, your hands are shaking. You're calling the Kentucky Derby, your hands are sweaty, your hands are shaking, your legs are shaking. You know, it's, it's the Kentucky Derby. And uh, when, so having that tool helps a little bit. But the other thing, like you said, is total memory. Um, I will honestly say on an, on an average horse race midweek, I might not be able to remember all the horses' names every time, and I'll take a peek occasionally down at my program or my iPad that I use. But for the Kentucky Derby, that isn't happening. You, you know, it's, it's all in your head and, and you're not looking away. Um, because the thing is, that every time you look away, there's a chance you might miss something. And that's why it's so important to, to memorize those horses. Yeah. What's the most difficult thing about calling the race? Is it like the weather conditions sometimes you called races especially remember a preakness you calling it through the rain and the fog you can barely see the horses on the other side of the track how do you even how do you even try to do something like that well you you kind of hope i mean the ideal weather conditions for a race are overcast skies and no rain uh because you don't have the glare from the sun or the shadows and that kind of stuff but yeah occasionally you get situations that come up uh, when justify won the won the preakness you couldn't see anything on the racetrack. They, you looked out at complete fog. I could see maybe, you know, 50 yards to either side of the finish line, and that's it. So when we were going to commercial breaks, the, the NBC people were showing me the, the shots that they had uh, from the camera towers. And luckily, I had two high-def monitors right in front of me, which the weird thing is I normally wouldn't have the reason they put them there because the Preakness had so many concert stages and tents that there was a lot of blocked views, uh, you know, for the race. They're like, you know, we, we, you might occasionally have to go to the, go to the uh, monitor. Um, in this case, I had to go to the monitor for the entire race. I couldn't see anything through my binoculars. As good as they are, they don't see through fog. And, uh, you know, that, that was a unique experience. I mean, I've called other fog races where you're calling off of monitors and you just kind of joke around and have fun with it because you know nobody else can see. But when it's the Preakness, you can't really mess around too much. You know, you, 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 have, to, you have to really be as good as you possibly can. And luckily, the NBC cameraman and the director, you know, had the right shots for me to be able to call the race. And uh, I, uh, like, I, like I told them, they called it for me. I, I just kind of watch what I could see and go from there. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, is, is there a requirement to mention every horse in a race? Personally, for me, there is. Uh, okay. there, there is no requirement 
you know, to my knowledge, I try to every time things come up, a uh, very short race, uh, you know, where uh, you have 12 horses going, maybe five furlongs and, and trouble happens in a race and the horses are steadying and you miss one, it happens, you know, but you try not to. I, I try to give them all a call. And in the Kentucky Derby, I, I make sure I do that. In fact, where I, uh, it's the only race where I sort of have a, a game plan where I want to call all of the horses before they run the first half mile. And because of that, I can give what that, as soon as I mention the last horse, I can give that half mile fraction of how fast they went and then go on from there. And, and all 20 won't get a call again. I think I got through the whole field this year because there was only 15. I got through them twice, I believe. Uh, but I, I don't recall exactly. But, uh, but yeah, it's, they all get a call once in the Derby for sure. Yeah, I, I didn't know if there was a requirement because I've heard that tossed around and I didn't know if that was just something in your head or, or if that was something that actually in the Derby in a race like that, that for you, that you have to hit on all those horses. So just interesting to hear. Um, but so now let's, let's go back to 2010 uh, at Monmouth Park. You probably know what I'm going to say. Uh, you had, a very, you had a, a very famous call of a race uh, and I'll put the audio in here so you all listening can hear it. Lady Mutata in front. Here come my wife knows everything and the wife doesn't know on the far outside. Little Miss Macho is fourth or into the stretch. Lady Mutata, my wife knows everything. Center of the track, the wife doesn't know. Into the final furlong, my wife knows everything. The wife doesn't know, they're one, two, of course they are. My wife knows everything in front. To the outside, the wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. The wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. More than the wife doesn't know. Whew. You had the audio of a race that goes viral between two horses. My wife doesn't, or excuse me, my wife knows everything and the wife doesn't know. Now, at first, when I heard this, Larry, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke with edited audio over the top of it. And then I quickly realized it was real. Um, did you realize when you were prepping for the race that that scenario had a chance to happen or did the comedy of it kind of happen organically as you were broadcasting it? Well, it, it was funny in that um, I, during the day, I mean, there were so many, there's so many races on a, I think it was a Saturday. And uh, I, I really didn't realize up until maybe an hour before the race that those two horses were in the same race because the, you know, one of them was like number two and one was number eight or something like that. And they're not like right next to each other in the program. And I was reading the, uh, the handicapping column in the daily racing form. And I saw uh, the fellow Kenny Peck wrote, this could make a very interesting call. And I'm like, Oh, well, you know, what's he talking about? And I looked, I'm like, Oh my God, these horses are in the same race. My <laughs> wife knows everything. And the wife doesn't know. And so my thought was just don't mess it up, you know, just get their names right. Don't confuse the two of them and just call the race and see what happens. And, and they were going down the backstretch in the race and, and you can get a feel after you've called so many races of which horses are kind of doing well and, and which horses are going to be dropping back. And when they're going down the backstretch, I could see these two were both traveling really well and, and kind of moving together. And I remember a friend of mine was in the back of the announcer's booth. And in the middle of the race, I completely turned around and just shook my head. Like, this is, this is going to happen. These two horses are going to finish first and second. So I just went on with it and, and, and had a good time. And, and uh, 
when the race was over, I'm like, well, that was kind of, that was kind of neat. I'll, I'll get some text messages from a few friends and, and that's pretty much what happened, you know, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on about it. Not too many people were talking about it at the time. Twitter was kind of new. I think I had only been on Twitter for like a, you know, a, a few months at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, these days would have been blowing up Twitter uh, on my feed. But, uh, but back then it was like, eh, whatever. It, was, it wasn't a big deal. And then I remember I was playing, I went the next, I think on Monday, I went up to Saratoga to visit. And I was playing in a charity golf tournament up there on Tuesday. And uh, when, I, when I was playing, I got a call from the general manager at Monmouth. It's like, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm at Saratoga. You know, I'm up, up playing in a golf tournament. It's like, well, can you come back down here? And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? We don't run again until Friday. And, and he said, I've got, um, I've got all these TV stations that want to interview you about this race call. And so I had to go back down to New York and go into Manhattan. I was, went on the CBS morning show, Inside Edition, you know, all these different TV shows wanted to talk to me about some stupid horse race that I barely remembered. You know, it was like, uh, it was so bizarre that the thing just kind of took off from there. But, uh, you know, it, it got about a, you know, b between a couple of different accounts, it got more than a million views on YouTube. And it was, it, was, it became pretty popular at the time. We still hear about it. Yeah, I, it was funny when I was when I was uh, looking some things up about you and some questions to ask. I was going back and rewatching the race, and like I said, I remember watching that on YouTube back ten years ago now. And I I remember listening to your call and thinking, I mean, this has got to be a joke, right? This has got to be like early stages of Twitter, YouTube, the internet, where people are putting jokes out. That I thought this can't be real, but no, Larry, it was very real. That was fantastic. It was it was real and it was real fun and <laughs> so uh, it was one of those one of those things. It's a, a one time thing because they they tried it again. They tried to put the two horses against each other on purpose in a race just to you know get the attention and and of course they finished nowhere. They were like eighth and tenth or something like that. So you, you, <laughs> you can't arrange these things. You just have to let it happen organically. Yeah. So you move from that to then doing the Kentucky Derby or doing. Uh, the Triple Crown, and you settle into that. And a few years later, American Pharaoh comes along in 2015. Um, I remember in 2015, I really enjoy horse racing. My dad's from Louisville, and I've grown up uh, with horse racing. And we have the collection of the Kentucky Derby glasses and the whole nine yards for, that, for all of that. And I remember in 2015, it was the year I graduated from high school. And when American Pharaoh was going to run the Triple Crown, I was at one of my friend's houses for a graduation party, and we had to go to a different friend's house. And I'm, I said, guys, we, we can't leave now. They're about to run the Triple Crown. And we were only going a couple of miles down the road, and we got stopped in traffic about two minutes before the race started. And we all pulled over on the side of the road to get the race. And I, I'll never forget listening to that Triple Crown pulled over on the side of the road and all of us screaming that finally after 37 years the triple crown had finally been won the streak was over but for you you're on the air you know you're you're the one calling the race what was it like for you larry calling the first triple crown in 37 years uh probably can can say it was the greatest moment of my life uh it was just the 
most incredible thing you could ever imagine uh, being involved in. And uh, the, the funny story is that the timing of it, I called my first race ever, like we mentioned earlier at Bowie Racetrack, and it was on June 5th, 1985. And on June 6th, 2015, 30 years and one day later, is when I got to call American Pharaoh winning the Triple Crown, which is, which is pretty darn cool. And uh, so this, I just remember the week leading up was, was really, uh, it, was, it was both fun and just, I was so nervous. You know, you just, it's like, you just don't want to, you don't want to mess this up. I mean, I, I had had the chance the year before to call California Chrome's chance at a Triple Crown uh, on NBC, Tom Durkin was still the track announcer in New York at the time, but for Farrow now, it was just me. I was just calling it for both the track and for NBC, so I, I realized that my call's going out everywhere, and I remember on the, the Wednesday of that week waking up with a sore throat, and I'm like, oh no, here we go, and uh, luckily that sort of went away as the week went on, and then the night before the Belmont, I went out to dinner with the uh, Tom Hammond, who was the host of our show on NBC, a legendary broadcaster, and, and Donna Brothers, who, who does the interviews on the horse after the race. And, and the, the three of us sat down to dinner, and, and at the table next to us was Penny Chenery, the owner of Secretariat. And uh, she came over and chatted with us for a bit. And uh, I just like, this is just all, this is such an omen. You know, this is going to happen tomorrow. I just had that feeling. It was just, this is all coming together. And it did. And, you know, I, I had planned all week of, you know, you know, people said, oh, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to just wing it, the call? Or are you going to plan on anything? You know, and I said, well, you, 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 can't, you can't wing a moment of history. And that's what Tom Hammond told me. It's like, you got to be prepared for things like that. And so I thought all week, you know, so what, what's the general feeling? You know, what, what are people thinking? And I'm like, if he wins, I'm like, well, 37 year wait is over. He's finally the one. And that's what came out, you know, for the race call. And, and uh, it was, it was just, I hardly remember the race itself because I was just in another world, you know, but right afterwards, I, I, it dawned on me what just happened. And I had these cameras in the announcers booth uh, from, I remember the New York racing association had a camera, NBC sports had a camera, the New York times had a camera to, you know, capture my reaction up there. And I just remember running away from them into the corner, back corner of the announcer's booth and just bawling because I had just called the first triple crown in 37 years. And I, and I came out of there and just was banging on the window of the announcer's booth. And just, I was as crazy as the people were downstairs. That's how crazy I was upstairs and just, you know, couldn't believe that it had just happened. And, and I remember uh, making the announcement of him returning to the, the winner's circle, which is sort of just a standard thing. And, and I was doing it in tears and you can hear that, you know, it was just, it was just such a, a special moment. I, I know I tend to be an emotional guy, but not, there's just nothing that, you know, this, that, that day, that moment was just unbelievable, truly unbelievable. Did you feel after the Derby and the Preakness, like that was going to happen? Did you have a good sense? You have enough experience calling races that, did you have a good sense that that was going to happen or did you feel like he was challenged? Well, you know, the, the thing is that there've been so many horses that had won the first two legs of the triple crown and you always think they're going to do it. You know, why not? They won the first two. Why aren't they going to win the last one? And so, uh, 
you know, American Pharaoh was just one of those, just like California Chrome before him, just like Big Brown, just like Smarty Jones and, and all these horses that, you know, are, are going to win this thing. And, and, uh, but he did, he actually did. And, uh, and then justified it three years later, which is pretty amazing in itself. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you always think they're going to win. And uh, there's always, until American Pharaoh, a way that they didn't win. Something always happened. And, and later that year, American Pharaoh goes on to be the first Grand Slam winner and wins the Breeders' Cup at Keeneland, uh, which is actually where it is again this year. But where do you rank American Pharaoh all time? Well, he's my favorite horse of all time because of, you know, just, just, just what he, he means to me. Uh, and that Breeders' Cup, by the way, was another just crazy emotional moment because it was the last race of his career, and you knew that going in. And I remember when he was pulling away from the field, and I said he comes into his final furlong, which I've never said that before in my, in my career because I, I knew that was it for him. And then, uh, you know, just finished the, finish the call by calling him a horse of a lifetime. And he, he was a horse of my lifetime, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, it, it, it's hard to rank him up with the secretariats of the world, uh, you know, the man of war and those horses. But he's, he's something special. I mean, he, he, did, uh, he did everything you wanted him to do. The, every once in a while, things didn't go. You know, secretariat lost four times. So he, it's not like he won every time. But American Pharaoh, you know, I called him losing the Travers at Saratoga, which was shocking because he was such a heavy favorite that day. And, and uh, these things happen. Horses lose occasionally, except for Justify. He never lost. He won every <laughs> um, it, The 2010s are pretty crazy for the Triple Crown between the two Triple Crown winners. And then in 2019, Maximum Security seems to have won the race, but then gets disqualified after an inquiry. Did you realize when you were actually doing the race, did you see that happen in real time and have that in the back of your head? Or did you not realize until after what was going on? No, I didn't see it at all because that, that area at the, uh, right before they turned for home there is kind of a tough area. Um, you know, you, you, uh, you have a lot of things kind of in your way and the horses are just making their way to the top of the stretch. So unless you were looking at the view from on top, which uh, NBC was later showing, you really couldn't tell anything was going on as far as you know, him interfering with other horses, especially because there's so many and it's muddy and you just want to get the horses right. So I didn't, I didn't see it originally. But so after the race, I go out of my booth to the chart caller's room, which is right outside of where I, um, where I work for the Derby. And I see the objection sign comes up and and that the jockey of the second horse had claimed foul against the winner. And I'm like, well, I'm watching the replay a couple of times. And I'm like, well, there's nothing here. I mean, he didn't interfere with that horse at all. And so I made my way downstairs, just headed down to the NBC compound, thinking there's nothing left for me to, you know, be up there for. Uh, this, everything's fine. And I get, I get into the trailer where we, you know, we assemble before and after the shows. And... <laughs> And the only other person in the trailer was a guy that had been on the show with us earlier, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, so <laughs> he and I are watching this thing and they're still looking at it. And now I'm seeing the views of what's going on. And I'm like, oh my God, this horse is going to get disqualified. But he, he came out and he interfered with War of Will. And, and uh, you know, Tyler Gaffleone had to check bad. And then John Cord had to check really bad on 
his horse and I'm like, man, this is rough. This horse is coming down. And, and Dale heard, Dale Earnhardt Jr. says, well, how many, how often does this happen in the Kentucky Derby? It's never, not once. <laughs> and he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, we're about to see the first DQ ever. And I remember I asked him, I said, what happens, you know, in your sport? Do they ever disqualify you? And he says, no, they just fine us a lot. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, I mean, that's, that was bizarre. And I didn't even know what was going on until maybe 15 minutes after the race, you know, that it was a serious foul had been committed. And I, you know, I believe the stewards who made that decision made the right one. Did you have any discussions with the NBC production crew or anybody after that? I'm, I'm just curious what the behind the scenes was because I remember listening to that as it developed that everybody was a little confused about what was going on. It had never happened, so people weren't really sure how to handle it. And then NBC started showing more and more replays, and then they would go to uh, – they went up to the to – the, I, don't, I don't really know how to describe it. I guess the booth or, or the, the room where the officials were – uh, right. checking right. where, the, where the stewards were checking it and they were showing all the replays that they were looking at and uh, so how did that all play out um, afterwards well what happens is when when this process is going on the stewards are the people that make this decision whether to disqualify the horse or not there's three of them up there and they're also normally in communication with NBC to let them know exactly what is going on there was so much going on that the communication wasn't that great um, as far as what the, you know, what they were exactly looking at. So, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, is something that has been talked about since about improving for the future. And uh, one of those things was that I'm, I was told, like, you're, you're not to leave the roof, you know, because I'm right down the hall from them until the race is official, because what could have, I could have actually gone over there, you know, and gotten more information uh, from them and relayed that back to NBC, and it probably could have been more helpful. Uh, but uh, I didn't realize that there was that much going on at the time. So now until, the, as, as long as the race is, is still unofficial, I stay put, and uh, because I'm always the closest person to those stewards, and I can, I can go talk to them if need be. Gotcha. I'll let you interpret this however you want. What's the best horse race you've ever called? The best horse race I've ever called? I'm going to just... I, I'm going to say it was probably just American Pharaoh's Belmont triple crown win just because of the enormity of the situation. Uh, you know, wasn't the closest race by any means. I've called some really close ones uh, over the years. And uh, uh, I think one of those that, that stick around was the Breeders' Cup Classic uh, when, when Mucho Macho Man beat Will Take Charge by a nose on the wire and I remember I was at Santa Anita calling the race for NBC and uh, called Bucho Macho Man the winner of the race. Didn't think it was all that close. And I was, you know, really excited about how, how you know, great the race ended up at the end. And, and then they showed the first replay in slow motion. I'm like, oh, no, this is a lot closer than I think. You know, and, and they hadn't put the numbers on the board yet. You know, it says photo finish. They show the replay again. And we'll take charge. It made this huge run on the outside. And, and I looked at it again. I'm like, did I just call the wrong winner of the biggest horse race purse-wise in the United States? And they showed it like three more times. And I'm sweating bullets. I mean, I'm, I'm ashen white. And all of a sudden, they put up the number of Mucho Macho Man first. I'm like, oh, thank God. And, 
it, it was it was such a it was such a, a you know exciting moment. But if the photo finish had gone the wrong way, uh, it, it would have been a disaster. You know, I would have been tough to to live with for a while after that. Um, and I remember that night we all went out to dinner and and. Uh, one of the guys we, we worked with on the show had the photo finish on his camera and I saw it for the first time and it was an inch. And it was like, uh, like I said to myself, I'm never going to do that again. And of course I, I, I did, but uh, it's one of those things. Uh, I have a, a couple more questions here. I, like I said before, I have a lot of friends and family that are very into horse racing. And, sure. and so I asked them for some questions and uh, my uncle uh, wants to know a couple things. One, uh, What's your favorite Louisville restaurant while you're down there to call the Derby? Uh, I'll, I'll give a couple. I, I, I always have to give a, a plug to my, my man, Jeff Ruby, uh, who uh, Ruby's Steakhouse in, in downtown Louisville is just fantastic. And I've actually been to his place in Lexington and Nashville, too. And he's a great guy. And I always enjoy going there. You see a lot of the racetrack uh, people after the Derby there. That's where we went this year. Uh, one of my other favorites is just, it's in Louisville, but it's on Frankfurt Avenue on the east side of Louisville, a place called Veronese. Uh, and it's a really good spot. So if you're, uh, it's right by the train tracks on Frankfurt Avenue, if you ever stop by there. So that's uh, the other place I'll give a, a plug to. Uh, Rory, the bartender there, is a great guy. And when, when I called at Churchill Downs that one year, I was a regular there. Uh, and uh, we would always go there on Wednesdays because wine was half priced by the bottle. So we'd never miss <laughs> Flying down Wednesdays at Baronet's. <laughs> uh, um, the other thing he wants to know is now that you've gotten uh, a little bigger over the last 10 years and your career has really taken off calling these triple crowns, how often do you get recognized? You know, not that much because the people don't, people uh, don't see me that often, you know, and NBC will, will show me on the, on the show. Uh, and it's usually early before people are watching. I don't know if they, you know, they, they think I'll scare people late by it. Uh, by putting my face on the screen or, or what, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, a lot of people recognize my voice, but they don't recognize my face, you know, I, and, and it's, it's kind of neat. There's a, a, a restaurant that I go to here in Jersey where I live. It's uh, on a golf course and just a, just a little bar and they always have TVG on and showing horse races and, and people will be talking about the races and, and uh and i'll be uh, i'll be listening in and I, I won't say anything you know and and the bartender knows who i am and what i do and he he loves to play along with it and you know somebody will start talking like they have a lot of knowledge about about the races and and i'm like i, I don't know much about that stuff you know i'm i'm really uh, i'm really not not a horse racing guy i really don't know and, and, and it's like they don't know that i'm the guy that calls the kentucky derby you know? and it's kind of it's kind of fun to play around with people and eventually let them in on the joke later on no that's great that's great to just hear everything in the background and then then they finally realize hey this is a this is a guy we're talking to that knows what he's talking about right <laughs> it's it's pretty fun to, to have a good time with people on that yeah. um so my roommates one of my roommates dads uh who i get a lot of my derby info from he's uh he knows a ton about horse racing he wants to know from you uh, have training patterns changed uh, this year in particular with so many of the key prep races and the triple crown being moved and adjusted? Have you seen uh, the three-year-olds develop any differently? Well, I, I just think that they have because of the, I mean, everything's different this year. 
you know, with in 2020, horse racing outside of horse racing, it's all, you know, every, the whole world is different this year, but, but the triple crown races are so out of place compared to where they normally are. Uh, you know, with the Derby, the first Saturday in May, the Preakness two weeks later, the Belmont three weeks later, this year you had the, the Belmont stakes first at a different distance of a mile and an eighth, three months later, the Kentucky Derby, and then a month later, the Preakness. So obviously everything is a, is quite a bit different, but these, these horses, again, they're three years old. So uh, they're still in, they're still in their growth pattern. So uh, they're, they're better in the fall than they would be in the spring. They're stronger and better horses. So, um, you know, I, I think you'll, you're going to see a little bit better performances uh, this year from these three-year-olds than you would have in the past, just because of that. Uh, as far as the training patterns go, I mean, these guys have to, they, they have to train in their horse to wherever the race is, you know, and, and how, how long the race is. So they, they have to, you know, they have to take that all into consideration. And, uh, and what we've seen is, you know, a great, great performance by Tiz the Law in the Belmont and then thought he'd win the Derby, but authentic, you know, turned him back and, and was super impressive in the Derby. And, and now we're going to see uh, authentic try again uh, on Saturday. The Breeders' Cup's back at Keeneland uh, this November. Do you think the European entries will be uh, impacted at all by human travel restrictions or quarantine or anything like that? You know, I was wondering the same thing. Uh, I was thinking about that earlier today because uh, there's the, the big race in Paris coming up, the Arc de Triomphe, and there's so many great European horses in there, as there always are every year. And I was wondering that I haven't really got into – uh, who's coming and who's not coming from Europe yet, and it's still a, a month away. I would think that there would be, you know, some, you know, a, a lesser presence uh, from horses around the world just because of what's been going on. I don't know that for a fact, and I hope not because it's it's great to have these horses from from Europe come in and horses from around the world come in for the Breeders' Cup. That's what makes it so much fun, um, you know. And but there, there's going to be there's got to be some sort of uh, a lesser presence because of what's been going on in the world. Yeah. The horses don't know there's a virus. The trainers look uh, very relaxed. They don't have to wear suits. They don't have to deal with the connections at the track. The races get run and they're definitely getting bet, especially during quarantine without other sports to bet on. But surely it's a different vibe at the racetrack this year. So what's that been like? Yeah, it's been weird uh, for sure. Uh, started out with the Belmont Stakes and, you know, the pageantry of when they play New York, New York, and they come onto the track and they, they still did it. And to absolutely nobody, it was just horses and jockeys walking onto the racetrack and a completely empty cavernous Belmont Park. And, you know, here's Frank Sinatra's New York, New York blaring. And I'm like, man, this is weird. This is so weird. And then the same thing happens with my old Kentucky home at, the Churchill Downs to nobody. The place is completely deserted. And, and I call the races the Summer of Del Mar, uh, which is a highly attended track. And of course, there was no one there either because we couldn't have anybody there. Uh, so on track, the feeling has just been wacky different. Um, something that you're almost used to. And, and, and uh, at the Derby was so weird because I, you know, just to get to where I call the race is just normally you just walk through a sea of people and it takes forever you know people stop and there's no place to go and, and this year there's nobody there just walked right up to the elevator up to the top floor and there I was, you know, it was yeah like, so bizarre but that's 
that's 2020, you know, and, and hopefully it'll be over at some point so we can get back to the craziness of having, you know, 150,000 people at the Kentucky Derby because we certainly miss it. Yeah. A couple last questions for you here. First one is when a horse gets tripped up or when there's something that happens abnormal on the track, is it ever hard for you to stay concentrated on the race? Now, obviously that's your job, but how do you balance maybe if something like that happens, trying to inform the viewer when the camera shot has panned out, if say a horse trips or something crazy like that happens you want to inform the viewer of what's happening because that's obviously what the viewer might be thinking about but at the same time you have to call the actual race and get the winner down how do you balance that and how do you stay on task it's a fine line for sure something it depends on what happens as far as the the extent of it if if a horse if i see a horse fall and the jockey comes off and i and i look back and they're both up and they're 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 both fine. Then I'm not going to get too concerned about it. I'll say, hey, you know, the horse is up, the jockey's up, and then completely, you know, you know, complete the race call, and and it'll be a little bit toned down uh, than it normally would be, just because of you know, watching what else is going on back there. But if I can see that a jockey is, you know, still laying down on the track, or horse is still laying down on the track. I'm going to report, you know, have to report what I see. And also the, the rest of the race will be really muted as far as my excitement level. Uh, because, you know, you, the, the, the biggest concern is of the, the human and the equine life that you see there. And, and you know, the rest of the race is, is just a race, you know, yeah. and you just, you just get through it. Uh, so it, it varies as to... Uh, you know, to the extent of it, um, you, you just try your best to, to balance it. And it, most of that is natural. You know, it's just, it's how you, cause you're feeling the same way everybody else is. So, I mean, that, that, that makes it pretty much a natural thing. Do you feel like the evolution of safety in horse racing, both for the horses and for the jockeys is evolving? We've seen some issues with that over the last couple of years, but do you think that we're starting to make some progress there? Yeah, I, I think so. I think a lot of progress was made, you know, recently with the uh, the way they uh, changed the, uh, the the whips or the crops, whatever you want to call them. They're 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 not nearly as uh, you know they used to be way back when like leather. Now they're like little Nerf balls, you know, and and they they more make noise than anything. And and you know, I I in fact I I had uh, we had a couple of them and we we're like hitting each other with them and it really didn't feel too much, you know, so. I think we've they've come a long way with those and and uh, and overall you know uh, you know the veterinary care of of horses there you know there's there's a lot more focus on you know making sure horses are, are sound leading up to the race and and I I think uh, I think we're making progress for sure. All right, my last question here, Larry. Now this is going to air. Or I'm going to publish this next Tuesday, okay. but the pre but the Preakness is this Saturday, so we'll see how spot on you were. What's your Preakness preview? The weird thing about the Preakness this year is that all of the, the top horses seem to be early speed types, uh, like Authentic and an art collector who was going to be the second choice in the Derby before he was uh, slightly injured, uh, but he's back in, in top form. Uh, the Philly Swiss Skydiver as well in Thousand Words. All those horses tend to be 
front-running types, while most of the long shots in the race come from the back of the pack. So it'll be interesting to see how fast they go early, because if they really duel each other and, and, and get into a fight, then you may see a big upset in the Preakness. I don't see that happening. I, I think Authentic is going to win. Uh, I think he's, you know, for sure the horse to beat. I respect Art Collector and Swiss Skydiver. And, you know, there are a couple others that are okay in there that, you know, that, that could, could upset the apple cart a little bit. But based on what Authentic showed me in Kentucky, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, the favorite player and, and, and pick him. Larry, thank you so much. It's Preakness Week. I know you're busy. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning to talk. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure and uh, anytime. Thanks again to Larry for doing that interview with me, especially during Preakness Week. And it was the Philly Swiss skydiver edging out Larry's pick of Authentic to win the Preakness by just a nose. It was a photo finish in a thrilling way to round out the Triple Crown in 2020. Usually the Preakness, the second leg of the Triple Crown, but because of COVID-19, the Triple Crown ended at Pimlico this year. The Belmont was first, then the Kentucky Derby, then the Preakness this past Saturday. I mentioned it in the beginning, but the story that Larry told about running into Penny Chenery, the owner of Secretariat, who many consider to be the greatest racehorse of all time, Running into her just before the Belmont in 2015 when American Pharaoh finally broke that 37-year drought in between Triple Crown winners. Such a cool intertwining of horse racing history. Well, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you leave a rating and a review. It only takes a couple seconds to do that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and take some time. Let me know what you thought about today's show. And also, whatever podcast platform you're listening on, make sure you subscribe for future episodes. New episodes are out every Tuesday, and I'll see you next week on Paul's Points.